Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome to the Healing at the Edge podcast with Dale Borglum, also known as Ramdave. And I'm very happy today to welcome Dr. Kristen Neff a professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas. She is a 25 years Buddhist meditator and is the author of a recent book with the fantastic title, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. So as you probably know, Kristen, I've been working with dying people for a long time, and one of the main issues that comes up is compassion. In fact, I've rarely met a client who didn't need to do some self-forgiveness, mm-hmm. self-forgiveness at the end of life. And I think self-forgiveness and self-compassion are almost two words for the same thing. It's very intimately connected. Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of the Dalai Lama saying when he first came to America, in fact, his third visit to America, he said, now I'm beginning to understand that it makes me very sad. You Americans don't like yourselves. Mm-hmm. So all of these Buddhist practices and Hindu practices that have come from Asia are kind of already presupposing that we're grounded, we're centered, we're embodied, and we can begin this big process of dissolving our 
identification with, with character structure and identifying with true nature. We can just jump into compassion. Mm. And my, my experience, and I'd like to hear your take on this, is that without a firm foundation in mindfulness and even embodied mindfulness, grounded in centeredness, that compassion is going to be really difficult. Yeah, yes and no. <laughs> so first of all, it's not a simple East-West difference. It seems to be more whether or not the culture has a Buddhist background. So for instance, I did a study that compared Thailand and the United States with Taiwan. And Taiwan actually had the lowest levels of self-compassion. And Thailand, which is more Buddhist, had the highest levels. So that's one thing. It's not simply a cultural difference. I think it has something to do with you know, in Thailand, meditation is more part of the culture. Buddhism is more integrated in the culture. So that's one thing that's kind of interesting to note. Um, in terms of do you need a mindfulness practice first? Actually, the research doesn't support that either If, if in terms of like an actual mindfulness practice. In fact, what the research shows is that self-compassion first helps learn mindfulness because mindfulness can be frustrating and your mind wanders and people judge themselves for not being able to do it. So I would say that, um, you know, in terms of the general point of going to those levels of dissolving the sense of separate self, going to non-duality, those types of, um, you know, the deeper places where the practice takes you, I think absolutely you need to have compassion for this, even if it's illusionary, you have to have compassion for this thing we call the separate self. Um, otherwise, we get so caught that we can't even begin to start to dissolve it, right? On the other hand, self-compassion is a really good way to start dissolving it, right? So for instance, we can talk more about it, but in my model of self-compassion, which is three part, there's mindfulness, kindness, and, and common humanity. Right. But common humanity, I'm really, I really wanted to call it interbeing, but I know no one would understand what I was talking about. It's actually pointing to the interconnected nature of what we call the self. So it's not, it's not linear. It's not one comes first and then the other. Right. Um, but what I would say is that um, if you try to do a spiritual path, trying to dissolve the ego, try to understand or experience non-duality without attending to how we relate to suffering. And of course, the, I would, if I, if I may be so bold, I would disagree with the Buddha where the, <laughs> but I can't believe I'm saying that. But in other words, suffering isn't only caused by the illusion of separate self. There's a lot of causes of suffering, including just physical pain, right? But if we don't attend to how we relate to suffering, which is, of course, greatly exacerbated by the illusion of separate self, it's going to be very hard to let go of it. Is that, is that a more nuanced answer? It is complicated. And the reason it's important is because when I first came on the scene, people are saying, oh, you got to take mindfulness-based stress reduction before you take the mindful self-compassion course. That's actually not what we're finding. One is not a necessary precondition to the other. And actually, it's much more synergistic the way they work together. Yeah, that's my experience that they do work together. I mean, in some fundamental sense, you really can't have compassion for something until you're mindful of what you have to have compassion for. Which is but, why mindful is violence is part of self-compassion. In fact, it's it's you might say it's the first step temporally, but you can't you can't even give yourself compassion until you're aware of your pain. But in terms of like practice, it's not necessary. That's what's interesting. I mean, so in the moment. 
to me, almost all healing for almost all my clients happens at that interface between uh, embodied mindfulness and compassion. That the embodied yes. mindfulness supports the compassion, and the compassion makes bearable what you're being mindful of, and they keep feeding each other back and forth in a certain way. Exactly, but I mean, without mindfulness, you don't have. There's no show, you might say. That's why it's that's why it's an essential element of self-compassion. Which, when I first came up with the model, I was practicing meditation, and I and I realized that. But it doesn't mean that you have to like learn mindfulness skills, like take a course, take training, learn meditation before you can start to do self-compassion. In fact, it may be the reverse. So it's it's only it's an important distinction as people who like to teach these things to others. But in the moment, yeah, you you can't give yourself compassion if you're either lost in the pain, so there's no awareness of it, no perspective, or if you're just you know shutting down and not being aware of it. Now it's interesting the thing about in embodied mindfulness. I would say from my experience that embodied mindfulness really helps if you're if you can relate to the pain as a physical sensation as in your body. We Chris Chris Germer and I who developed the mindful self compassion program, we're always saying drop out of your head into your body. Right. So I'd absolutely agree, but again, I don't think it's actually necessary. Because some people who are very disassociated from their body are still able to get some traction with just more of the cognitive piece. So I, I guess maybe I, I just I'm just wary of saying that one piece is absolutely necessary in a certain way because that can, especially as practitioners, that can lead people a little bit astray. Okay. Well, are you okay with that? <laughs> That's this is my experience because I I teach self compassion to a lot of people. And so I've kind of been able to observe what works and what doesn't work. So it, but absolutely embodied mindfulness helps tremendously. Okay. I mean, my experience of meditation is that a lot of meditators tend to be disembodied. And yes. in fact, they're often coming to meditation because they are disembodied and they're trying to get away from that and make an end run around not really inhabiting their body and their lives. Yes, and, but you can also teach self-compassion without meditation. It's more yeah, effective sure. with meditation, but you know what I mean? It's not necessary. Okay. So <laughs> I was noticing that you've got these three, three kind of defining qualities of self-compassion, which are treat yourself with kindness and care, uh, shared humanity and mindfulness. And in a way, they're the three defining characteristics of compassion in Tibetan Buddhism. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but the, they say the three defining qualities are a warm heart, which is treat yourself with kindness and care, a connected heart, which is shared humanity, and a spacious heart, which is a mindful heart, if you will. So that's really interesting. I didn't know that actually when I developed the model, but but having said that, I read, I mean, the way the reason I developed the model was based on Buddhist, my Buddhist readings of compassion. So people like Christina Feldman, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield. So I didn't see it broken down that simply, but obviously because I was reading those texts that, that inform my model. And by the way, I have to say, those Buddhists were on to something <laughs> because all my research really shows you really need all three and they do work synergistically, right? right? And so if you, if you had maybe two of the elements out of the three, I don't think it would really cohere or be stable. You really do need all three. Um, and empirically, if you, if you examine my self-compassion scale, which measures each separately, um, and also some research that shows what happens if you, like, 
try to induce one, the other two increase as well. So they form some sort of natural system that coheres in a state of compassion, which is kind of empirical support for the teachings. So I'm not sure the Buddha or Jack or Sharon talked about those three qualities. I think that's a Tibetan Buddhist. That's well. That's interesting because I don't read any Tibetan Buddhism. So I I feel I feel glad to know that it's uh, you know great minds think alike. You might say <laughs> you came to it on your own in a very wonderful way. There have been these recent studies that show that that stress, of course, causes inflammation in the body, uh-huh. but that mindful stress does not cause inflammation in the body in the same way, which I think is this remarkable fact that should be uh, shouted from the rooftops in a certain way. And that beyond that, they did this big study with uh, 30,000 people, 10,000 people with high stress where there's no training, 10,000 people with high stress where they're taught mindfulness and compassion and things, and 10,000 people in a control group, highly medium and low stress. And the the high stress group with no training died 48% more often than the other two groups. But the high stress with mindfulness and compassion does better than the control group that even has a lot of people with low stress. So it's not the stress, it's the unmindful stress that causes the inflammation and the illness and the dis-ease. Wow, so um, what study are you referring to? Can you send me, can you send me the reference for that? I want to look at that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're giving me some homework. I'll see if I can you, can, you can do that, you can do that afterward. But yeah. it, it makes sense. I'm actually, um, so I'm not I, so it's so hard to keep up with the self-compassion literature. I'm not up to speed at all with with the mindfulness literature. So, but it makes sense. In other words, so what what we've seen is so. To give an example, a study of um, veterans, combat veterans, found that more important than how much combat experience they had in terms of predicting PTSD was how self-compassionate they were toward that stressful experience. So so basically it makes sense. And there's also a lot of data showing that one of the main things compassion does. And, you know, it's very hard to tease out mindfulness and self-compassion, especially because measures of self-compassion include mindfulness. And, you know, so, so the two, it's like, it's like a couple doing the tango and it's like, what parts, what you can't really disentangle it. So we just, if we think of them as a joint construct, um, they absolutely work on the nervous system to increase um, parasympathetic activity, you know, heart rate variability, reduce things like cortisol, which is the negative aspects of stress. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me at all, but what does surprise me is there's a study with that big a sample size. So I want to read it as soon as possible. <laughs> I'll try to Great. find it. I mean, I yeah. I often quote things and then I forget the source about them. <laughs> right. so I'll, yeah. I'll dig in there. But uh, do you ever distinguish between compassion with a small C and compassion with a capital C? That, um, that like we cultivate compassion, there is I am deepening compassion by doing these practices and compassion is my true nature. Compassion is an inherent quality of the awakened mind. Um, so certainly not in the scientific world, but um, in terms of my personal practice, I, I wouldn't have differentiated it that way. Um, but my, my own, and this, this, this is in accordance with teachings, but just basically my straight on personal experience the qual- the nature of awareness is not neutral it has a quality and that quality is one of love and compassion 
Yes. Right. So when you open in meditation or even just some moments when you we become open and the sense of separate self dissolves and you're just really, really present, it's not like this neutral, oh, I'm just aware of everything. Love arises, your heart opens. And, that, and so they seem to be intricately intertwined in a way that I, I'm very comfortable, even as a scientist, saying that the true nature of consciousness is a loving one. But as a scientist, you have a hard time getting away with that one. Although Dick Schwartz does. I don't know who's developed internal family systems. He talks about it. So some people do talk about it. Um, and I think from a personal point of view, that seems to be true. Um, but I don't, I don't distinguish it in my work because, you know, you're still dealing with people who think that consciousness is just electrical, electrical activity in the brain and, you know, you got to start slow and start small. I'm kind of a recovering scientist. I have a PhD in math. All right. Okay. I went to Berkeley where you went, and then I uh, went to the enemy, and I went to Stanford for my PhD. So <laughs> right, right. intellectualism yeah. almost killed me. So I've kind of pushed it aside, and I'm much more well, and, you, and it's so limited. I have to say, I just recently um, retired. I'm still doing research. I still have a modified appointment as an associate professor, but. I'm not teaching and I kind of, I'm, I'm really focusing more on still doing research, mainly the teaching of self-compassion and writing. Academia is so limited that the mindset is so limited. It's so close-minded really in a way that I think is really counterproductive. Um, and I, I just think that it's useful. It's a tool, but the, the hubris of scientists thinking that just because we can't explain it scientifically means it doesn't exist is like mind-blowingly illogical and it's very frustrating for me. But, but at the same time, having somebody like you on the inside yeah. talking about self-compassion and having it validated with studies and stuff yeah. is also oh, It's useful. Important. Yeah, it's useful. And the self-compassion wouldn't have gained, I think, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have gained the increasing acceptance in kind of mainstream society without the science. So it was really, really important to do that. But as a scientist, I fully appreciate the limits of the scientific mindset. And it can tell us certain things that are useful, but it certainly doesn't explain everything. And that's, that's really from my own experience of meditation and my own spiritual practice. Um, anyway, so I don't, I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted here. <laughs> So when you go to the scriptures, they talk about compassion. Rarely do they talk about self-compassion. Yes. Kind of assume if you're a practitioner, then you like yourself enough to start just having compassion for other people. How did you come to being the expert in self-compassion as opposed to compassion? Yeah. And, so, and it's funny, I also kind of wonder, was it the case that back then when the Buddha was teaching or these, these um, texts were written down, you know, was it the case that people just really didn't have a problem giving themselves compassion? Or maybe it's just because psychology hadn't been as developed, they weren't as aware of it. I don't really know. I mean, I think we have to keep an open mind about that. But certainly it's assumed that you naturally gave yourself compassion. Uh, but certainly from my, my own experience, and I think any any person in the field of psychology will tell you, and, and again, it's not East-West, Taiwan, China, Korea, you know, most, most of most cultures, not all cultures, but most cultures. And, and I think there's a physiological reason for this. I think most people tend to go into um 
threat defense mode if they make a mistake or something difficult happens to them, which are the, the, the times when we need compassion when there's suffering, which means either personal suffering because I feel badly about myself or suffering because something happens. We go into fight, flight, or freeze mode just physiologically. This the, That system evolved for threat in a way that doesn't get triggered when someone I care about is threatened quite the same way. So we've got, you know, I think Paul Gilbert's work is so relevant here. We have the care system that evolved to care for others, and we have the threat defense system that evolved, you might say, to keep ourselves safe. And so I think it's natural for people to go into fight, flight, or freeze when they feel threatened. So fight manifests as self-criticism. Uh, flight manifests as shame, that feeling of wanting to isolate from your group, hang your head in shame, and freeze manifests as rumination. So it seems to be, and you might even say almost natural for us to be unself-compassionate when we feel threatened. And what we're doing with self-compassion, I like to call it like we're doing a little hack. We're hacking into the system that's more natural for others, for, for group members and um, family and care, loved ones, the care system to tend and befriend. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's why part of me wonders, was it really the case that people were really self-compassionate back then, or was it just not even thought about or considered or talked about? Well, but anyway, in terms of how I got into it, well, so I just saw the great need. I mean, I started practicing self-compassion. I always think I'm so fortunate that I learned meditation in a Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha because he, he talked about it almost more than anyone at the time. Even insight meditation, which was kind of, I gravitated to that because it was a better personality fit for me. But they weren't, even Sharon Salzberg's loving kindness, she didn't, they don't really use the word. They weren't so explicit about the need to turn compassion inward the way that Thai's teachings were. And so I started practicing them. I just saw the immediate impact on me. And then I did, because I started getting interested in Buddhism. I did myself my postdoc in self-concept development, you know, what is this thing we call the self? And I started get, getting really familiar with all the self-esteem literature. And I just realized that the field was missing any concept of self-compassion. They just had self-esteem, which is kind of predicated on the separate self that is contingent on approval, success, appearance, all these things. And so I remember when, when I got my job at UT Austin, I was really frightened. As, you know, I didn't have tenure yet. And I asked a mentor of mine, I said, I really want to study self-compassion. I know there's something here. I, I think I can, I think I can do something interesting here. And I said, should I wait till I get tenure? Because I don't know how the, the powers that be are going to look at this crazy left field kind of woo-woo sounding self-compassion thing. And I got great advice. He said, no, Kristen, if you really think there's something there and you're really passionate, do the research and you'll get, that will probably help you get tenure if you do good research. And he was right. So I, I was just in the right place at the right time. And here's the thing. I mean, yeah, I did make a contribution and I can appreciate myself for that. I'm not going to like falsely say it didn't make a contribution, but I'm just a messenger. <laughs> Self-compassion is what makes this so important. You know what I mean? If anyone I think had tried to research self-compassion, we get similar results because self-compassion is so effective that it almost, I don't want to say sells itself. It's not a sales job, but it, it's also just so common sense. Yeah, I think people, as soon as they hear the notion, they say, yeah, that's something I'm like. makes sense. Yeah. And also, yeah, of course, if I, if I treated my friend the way I treat myself, how helpful would that be? Not very, <laughs> but for that, but I think cultural reasons, combined with those actual 
important physiological reasons make this not an intuitive thing for us at first. You Do you find that women have a harder time with self-compassion than men? Growing up in a society that tends to treat women as having to have a certain value based on certain things that make it hard yes. to just have this intrinsic self-worth or not? Uh, yes, slightly, but it's really not, it's not like biological sex, it's gender role socialization. Yeah, so yeah. we actually have done some research on this. So in meta-analyses of, um, you might say, sex differences, who knows if those are biological, whatever, sex differences, women have slightly lower levels of self-compassion than men. So it's small, but it's consistent. But if you look at a gender role orientation, uh, it's all explained by gender role orientation. So for instance, androgynous women don't have lower levels of self-compassion than men. And to, and I'm pretty sure, I don't know for sure, but my, my surmise is it's explained by feelings of entitlement right. because traditionally women are socialized to be self-sacrificing and they don't feel as entitled to meet their own needs as men do. It's a little harder for them. Having said that, I mean, that's why this whole book is raised aimed towards women. Um, having said that, 85% of the people who show up at any one of my workshops are women, partly because compassion is actually part of the female gender role toward others. And so that's why the title Harness Kindness, because compassion is women kind of, I think, are raised to understand the value and the power of compassion, that it's a good thing. And then so the only trick is to say, okay, well, you deserve it too. But they are they already believe in compassion. They already know how to do it. Whereas for men, even though they might feel more entitled to meet their own needs, the whole idea of intentionally using compassion is a little more foreign and maybe a little more, I don't know if the word threatening is the right word, but a little more unnatural. So uh, before we were talking, uh, right in the beginning, you were throwing around the word pain and compassion and suffering. And yeah. they're, they're, they're two different things. Yeah, well, they, they are. So, so yeah, if you use, you can use them precisely or not precisely. So in, in, um, in my work, I just tend to use them almost interchangeably because most people outside of, um, you know, Buddhist contests would use them interchangeably. Um, so if, if you use kind of from, from the Buddhist perspective, you know, I love, um, Shinzen Young's definition, you know, suffering equals pain times resistance and that. Right. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Right. Suffering comes from the resistance we give to pain. Um, but I would also say that compassion is um, good for both, right? So in other words, there is the pain. There's like just physical pain. And maybe you don't resist it, but there's still pain there. And compassion could still be used to help give you self-kindness, self-soothing, you know, understanding, connectedness in the experience of just pain. Uh, but also when it's suffering in the sense that you're exacerbating the pain through resistance. So self-compassion, I think one of the ways self-compassion works is actually by lessening resistance to pain. Because when you feel like it's my fault, I'm the only one, then you're going to resist it even more, yeah. right? So, you know, Put it this way, would you need self-compassion if you were, had no sense of um, separate self? I would actually say yes. <laughs> you say that again? You could call it, so some people might ask, well, do you need self-compassion? Let's say you're enlightened or actually, it's, I think this is a state, not a trait. Let's say you're in a state of um, 
real awareness. There's um, there's there's no sense of separate self. You're feeling this peace. Um, would you still need self compassion? Well, certainly not as much. <laughs> but let's say um, you know, for the, I, I really like the way Buddhists talk about compassion as being omnidirectional. Right. It's not really self compassion. It's omnidirectional compassion. In other words, I, we, Chris and I were talking with a, a Buddhist monk who just said, naturally, oh, you mean inner compassion and outer compassion. You can just take the word self out of it. You don't need a sense of separate self to have self-compassion. Because in fact, what self-compassion does is it reduces that sense of separate self. But you do need to turn self-compassion inward as well as outward, whether or not a sense of a strong sense of separate self is present. And in fact, if you don't, you're going to just reify that sense of separation, right? Does that make sense? It so inner, you need inner compassion and outer, you need omnidirectional compassion at all times. And you might even say the nature of awareness is full of omnidirectional compassion, whether the lens of consciousness is aimed inward towards subjective thoughts, feelings, sensations, or outward. So my sense of it is that initially, there's some distinction between I'm having compassion for you or them doing Tonglen or some kind of practice or yes. I am cultivating compassion for you or even for myself. But eventually, yes. compassion is not an emotion. It's a state of being that it's an open-hearted relationship, whatever is arising, including your own arisings and what, what you're perceiving in the world. Right? Yes, so you're exactly. Not, you're not making a distinction. All. You are right. compassion. Right, right. That's right. So there's, there, there doesn't need to mean there doesn't need to be a distinction, right? But having said that, that also means that anything that arises internally would be included in that circle of compassion. Chris and I like to say, it's a very humble agenda, self-compassion. All you're doing is including yourself in the circle of compassion, whereas most people. And this is true from the data. Most people tend to exclude themselves, at least don't give themselves nearly as much compassion as they give to others. And so that's, we're just trying to kind of recorrect that imbalance and be more inclusive. So the sense of separation between self and other is not as strong. But the, I remember like Matthew Ricard, bless him. At first, he was really suspicious of this whole self-compassion idea. You know, isn't the self the problem? But I think over time, he came to realize that we're just using the word self as a placeholder, a more appropriate word, even though it wouldn't have been, it'd be too weird for most people, a more appropriate word would have been, would have been inner compassion. Oh, okay. And I think most Buddhists would have a lot less problem with, yes, of course, we need inner compassion, like we need compassion aimed outward. It doesn't, it actually doesn't reify the self. A lot of this is a language issue, right? I, I tried to formulate everything. Like I said, I wanted to call common humanity interbeing. What you're really looking at with compassion from the Buddhist perspective is a, a wise understanding of interbeing, interdependent causality. You know, I blame myself for this, but in fact, if you look at all the interdependent causes and conditions, and is there a self that caused it, when you really look at it with wisdom, it doesn't make sense to blame yourself because your actions are embedded in this, you know, huge web of causes and conditions, interbeing. But I had to use terminology that would be understandable to the layperson. So I use things like common humanity and the word self, but they aren't really the most accurate words to use if you look at it at a deeper level. So one final point, we only got a few more minutes. I know you've got to go. Yeah. Uh, 
a lot of my podcasts are kind of geared toward people who have pr- been practicing a lot, people who are yeah. uh, longtime meditators. What would you just say to somebody who hasn't meditated much or somebody who would like to guide somebody who hasn't meditated at all? Mm-hmm. How could you how could you generate self-compassion? Uh, yes. In a in a down and dirty, robust way. How can you go from being lost in the superego, judging yourself mm-hmm. in the moment to uh this these three qualities of treating yourself with kindness, shared humanity, and mindfulness. Yeah, so um, we have what we call um, formal and informal practices. The formal practices being meditation, informal are ones that don't require meditation. And by the way, our research shows they're equally effective at increasing the amount of time. It doesn't matter what you, how you practice, it's that you practice. And so a lot of um, the shorter programs they do have no meditation because either people don't have time or some people culturally, they aren't comfortable with it. They shouldn't have to meditate to learn self-compassion. So for instance, we have the self-compassion break. And on my website, selfcompassion.org, I've got a ton of guided practices that you could send people to. Most of them, I've got some meditations, but I have a lot of things that aren't meditations. So the self-compassion break, just you just intentionally bring in mindfulness. Wow, this is really hard. Common humanity. I'm not alone. This is part of being human. There's nothing wrong with me for feeling this. This is kind of a shared experience. And then some kindness. Say some words to yourself like you would naturally say to a good friend. And that very simple intervention can be really pretty powerful in in putting people into a a self-compassionate state of mind. Meditation is really good for brain training. (laughs) And so, you know, there's a lot of power to it. But in the moment, it almost doesn't matter how you get there. There's a lot of ways to open that door, in my experience. Consciousness doesn't care how you get there or, or how long it takes or how much it hurts as long as you get there. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, Kristen, thank you so very much. This has been great. Uh, compassion has been something that really is at the core of my teaching. To be honest with you, I didn't get around to really sharing how I'm again and again surprised that how people have a hard time understanding compassion. Even people have been meditating for a long time. They think it's being nice. They yes. don't really understand the fierce quality. They don't understand that when your heart is open, anything that comes out can be compassionate. Uh, we're both parents. If you raise a child and you never say no, you're going to raise a monster. Exactly. So that it's learning to say no with an open heart to say yes with an open heart. And that's just, we didn't really tap into the fierce self-compassion, which of course I also borrowed from Buddhism, right? Because in Buddhism, fierce compassion is when you stand up, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talked a lot about fierce compassion, Sharon Salzberg does, about that it's not just sitting on your cushion, it's also standing up for what's right, social justice, making change. And so that's also part of self-compassion, standing up for yourself, changing. You know, you may accept yourself unconditionally, but you don't want to accept all your behaviors unconditionally or all the situations you find yourself in unconditionally. And so I thought that that was um, another thing to borrow from Buddhism that made so much sense, even for individual practice. Thank goodness Buddhism makes sense. You know, it really does. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure. It was fun to have this level of conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.